everyone! Welcome to the Give Spotlight. My name is Callie Curtis, and I am a web development and professional writing intern at the Gibbs College of Architecture. Today, we are talking to Sean Schaefer. Sean Schaefer graduated with his Master's in Architecture from OU in 1993, and he has been the director of the Urban Design Studio since 2000. The first question I'm going to ask you here is, how have design methods and practices changed in the field of urban design since you were a student? I barely know where to begin, right? There's so many things have happened, you know, since I was a student in the practice of urban design and the construction of cities. You know, I'll list some of the things and some things that have influenced me the most. One is community-based participatory uh, research and design. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of a lot of architectural designers, especially you know from maybe my generation or the generation before, you know there was a lot of this uh, you know solitary genius, like you know well we'll go away, we'll come up with this beautiful rational design, and you know everybody will love it sort of thing, and that didn't work out so well. Now we use a completely different approach where we we basically are you know, servants to our communities and our clients. And we, we ask them to set the agenda uh, or the program for a design, uh, that sort of thing. So, I, you know, I think that was a, a, a big shift, big change um, in, in the methods. <clears throat> you know, a lot, a lot of things have happened. Uh, sustainability and resilience was something that I can't really remember getting into too much in school, um, but now it is extremely important. You know, we're facing things like climate change and globalization, uh, mass uh, urbanization, you know, around the world. Designing for acute shocks and chronic stresses has become a big part of, you know, what we're interested in. You know, some, some other methods sort of embraced over the years, uh, things like using design games, to engage people in the design process and, and, you know, using behavioral economics when we create spaces, you know, uh, thinking about how people will, will use our spaces, both as they were functioned to use and how we might not have anticipated they, they might use. So you said that you'll use design games. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? My, uh, my hero in this area is a guy named Henry Sanoff, and Henry's still around, and uh, he's actually worked with some of our students on projects, but he, he, uh, he came up with this idea, you know, to actually involve users of buildings or, you know, citizens of, of neighborhoods or public spaces, and to come up with, uh, you know, games that were fun to play help them develop ideas. So I'll give you an example of, you know, we, we did a project here in Tulsa called Tulsa Midtown Redux. One of our city councilors at the time asked us, hey, can you help us with this? Because they were, they're having, we're having this issue. So we have an old historic neighborhood in Midtown and it's got a lot of, of great old homes. And there's some major streets like Cherry Street and Utica Avenue that go through the neighborhood and there's a lot of commercial development taking place and the, the developers are are in some cases tearing down buildings they're adding parking lots parking is spilling out onto the residential streets it's having a negative impact the neighbors are up in arms what can we do you know and so 
what, what the studio did was we actually invented a design game that we could play with the neighbors and the developers, and we brought them together. Instead of antagonizing them, having them, uh, you know, in, in an adversarial position, we asked them to work together and come up with what would you like to see developers and what would you like to see residents? Some of the residents wanted no development. Well, that was not the premise of the game because we need development. The city needs development. And the fact of the matter is probably a lot of these neighbors, you know, end up going to the shops and restaurants and things that were being developed. So it was just, it was a matter of getting them focused on the issue and getting them working together. And we, the students built models that they were, they were planning models. So they were pretty large scale and there were building blocks like Legos, you know, that we cut out on our laser and uh, people had to stack them up. They had to provide for parking. You know, it was pretty, pretty realistic. What we found was that uh, at the end of the day, the developers and the homeowners actually were pretty much in agreement with what they wanted. The real problem was the city's zoning ordinances and other regulations wouldn't let you build them right? Both the residents and the developers wanted to build their buildings right up on the property line, and they wanted to make it very walkable, and they wanted mixed uses. But at that time, you couldn't do any of that. You had to have a big front yard setback. You had to have big parking lots that were required. You had, you, you know, it was very difficult to do mixed use or anything like that. So by doing that game, we, we were able to get them to think together and work together and that sort of lowered the temperature. And it also pointed out what the real problem was, which I don't think is what the city really expected to hear. <laughs> and uh, took quite a while to, to even change any of that, but it has been changing, right? I mean, we do have more, you know, mixed use zoning uh, available. You know, we're still kind of working on the, the setback thing. The parking situation is a lot better too. So. Anyway, so that's an example of a design game, but there's a lot of different kinds uh, of games. And, you know, one of the things that one of my former students, David Beach, was working a lot with the Tulsa and Union Public Schools, and he developed design games that were uh, electronic via, you know, that you could use via the web and, and social media. Thank you so much. Now, how, how would you say that the use of technology has changed since you were a student? Oh man, that's, that's another, that's another massive thing. So, you know, I mean, I guess I'm getting pretty old, right? But like when I was in school, I remember Professor Dietrich, I remember taking, he taught a computers in architecture class, okay? I still remember one of the assignments is we had to write a program to draw a circle, okay? And it, it was like a week-long assignment. And we were programming, I think in, in Fortran, I think it was, it was like three pages of code just to make the computer draw a circle and print it out on a, on a piece of paper, you know? And so that's how primitive it was, right? I mean, you know, and I, I remember we got AutoCAD. It was, it was some very early version, you know, like 2.5 or something. And we, you know, we tried using that. We didn't have any email. We didn't have cell phones. You know, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I mean, you know, there was, you know, not a lot. When I graduated and I started working at Murray Jones Murray, the first job I did was for the Army Corps engineers and we drew everything by hand. And the second job for American Airlines and they required CAD. And I remember the company had to buy a, a computer to do it. 
And I was the youngest intern, right? And so they figured, well, he, you know, he can figure it out. Nobody else knew anything about it. And I remember they got me the computer and it had four megabytes, not gigabytes, four megabytes of RAM. And everybody was like, oh my God, that is incredible. Four megabytes of RAM. (laughs) So, you know, it was very, very, you know, it was very different in terms of technology. Just since I've been the director, you know, 20 years things have changed dramatically. So, you know, we have uh, rapid prototyping tools in the studio. We've got a stereolithographer. We got, we've had a laser cutter almost the entire time that I've been director. We acquired a drone uh, to take aerial reconnaissance surveys. Uh, we have parametric and par- procedural modeling programs that we use, things like Rhino and Grasshopper and City Engine. Uh, that we can do things. I, I learned all about GIS and, and big data and been doing th- those sorts of projects. These were things I had no clue of uh, when I was a student. I mean, technology, and then of course, you know, like cell phones and, and, and stuff uh, and using, using those in practice, using those in for community outreach and things like that. Uh, that it's just really changing things. And I think you know, I'm reading a book right now called The Smart Enough City about, you know, the role of technology in how cities work and how, you know, we, should, we shouldn't rely on technology to, to solve things. And, and in a lot of cases, trying to it oversimplifies the problems, right? The problems in cities, not just to make things as efficient as possible, you know, uh, sometimes you can make things efficient. So like in the book, the example they use is, uh, at MIT, they designed a, a system where the cars could talk to one another and you didn't have to have any stoplights. And so, you know, the cars would go through just whenever they wanted to go through. And that's very efficient. You can put a lot of cars through the intersection quickly that way. But it didn't think at all about pedestrians and cyclists uh, or public transit or anything. And they were were, you know, totally left out of the equation. So that's kind of an example of how technology could go awry if you're not, if you're not, you know, thinking about the issues, you know, in a broad way. Hey, thank you. So it sounds like technology is really advancing a lot, but the people part matters a lot more too. Yeah, it does. Right. And, and I, I think there's advancements in that too. Um, and it's, it's harder. I think it's, it's harder. One of my colleagues here, uh, Dr. Hellman, he's in the, he's in the school of social work, but we've worked together uh, a lot and I've learned a lot from Chan. He's an experimental psychologist and he, his expertise is in the, the theory of hope. <laughs> so like if I were to ask you, you know, what, what, how would you define hope? I kind of see it as something like a motivation for you to like, for things to get better. I don't know if that's a good way to explain it. <laughs> actually, it is. So what I learned from Chan is that there's, there's actually three parts to the definition of hope, okay? And you mentioned two of them, and most people I talk to only mention one, okay? So the one that I hear most often is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vision or setting a goal for the future where you see yourself in a, in a, hopefully in a better position than you are now. Okay, so I, you know, I hope for that, right? And uh, what Chan, you know, sort of taught me was that if you just have that, it's not hope, it's just a wish, right? That if you really want to 
achieve that goal, you need two other things. You need a pathway or pathways to get you from where you are now to that next better state. And you need the other part that you mentioned, which is the motivation or the agency to take the path, right? So like, even if you have this vision and you have a way to get there, if you don't, if you don't actively do it, if you don't, you know, extend yourself and, and take the path, you're not going to get there. And it's just a wish, right? And so like, it's, it's raining here today. I wish it wouldn't rain. You know, uh, I, some people might say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain, right? But what they really mean is they wish it wouldn't rain because there's no, they don't have any pathway or agency to change that. But this is really sort of, this sort of thinking, you know, it really resonated with me. And I, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, as, as urban designers and architects, of, uh, uh, you know, designers of all stripes, I think we do a pretty good job at that first part. We're good at envisioning things. We're good at working with people and helping them set their goals. But we're not so good with the pathways and agency part. You know, it's kind of like, well, here's your design. Good luck with that, right? You know, and um, uh, and so what I've as I, as I've learned about this, one of the takeaways is, you know, hey, we need to focus more on pathways and on uh, agency. And uh, you know, I, I think one way to do that is with placemaking uh, principles. Uh, and I learned a lot of this. Uh, working with the, the Institute for Quality Communities. Everybody over there, Shane and Hope and Ron and Vanessa, and the, the placemaking conferences that we've had and all the experts that we brought in, you, you don't have to make a grand plan. You know, it, it's, it's actually more important to get people involved, take things sort of step by step and, you know, prototype and test them before you come up with a grand plan, you know, and, uh, and you can actually activate uh, the spaces that way in an incremental way. Uh, and I think that helps build the hope. You don't, you don't just have a plan and, you know, if there's no pathways or, or agency, it just gets put on the shelf and like, there's our plan. Great. So, so I think there's, I think there's progress being made. Uh, neuroscience is also making a lot of progress in learning how we see reality. And I've been reading a lot of stuff lately about embodied cognition and how, you know, uh, everybody experiences a place, not just in their mind, but in their body and the body and the mind are connected and with the environment. So that's, you know, that's another thing to put into practice when you're designing uh, a space. Thank you. Yeah, that description for hope really resonates with me. To me, whenever you're talking about uh, hope for the community and uh, having a plan, you really need teamwork or collaboration for all of that. Next question that I have for you is, how have the changes in methods of design and technology personally affected you through your own career and projects? I don't come to a project, or at least I try not to come to a project as, as like, I'm the expert or I know it all, right? It's, it's more like I'm a servant to help, right? Maybe, maybe I can help. Maybe I know certain, uh, I have certain knowledge or I have certain skills uh, that, I can, that I, can, I can help uh, them achieve their goals. You know, I think being humble and having humility is, is very important and also to be not defensive, like when you do design something, I try to subscribe to, there's another psychologist, used to be at Oklahoma State, uh, Robert Sternberg, and he, he used to say, you know, that 
he, he followed like a market principle for ideas, right? So like, you know, you, ideas are cheap. You can, you, you buy them low and you sell them high. If you, if ideas are good ideas, they'll appreciate in value. But if they're not so good, then they're cheap. Go get a, go get another idea. Don't just try to hold on to a, a bad one. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I try to, to follow that in my uh, practice. And, and I, I think what you were saying about, you know, teamwork and, and working in multidisciplinary environments uh, is, you know, definitely where we're at and, and where we're heading even more because things are so interconnected um, and particularly cities, you know, as sort of uh, uh, complex adaptive systems, you know, you no no person can know it all. No person can grasp it. E- even a multidisciplinary team may not be able to grasp it all. Thank you. What would you say is the most valuable thing that you've learned at Gibbs College? For me, it's just uh, to keep learning, right? You know, and that's that's one of the reasons I like teaching because I meet with the students all the time, and they always know more than I do. They have new ideas. They keep me on my toes. And, you know, I just like, I like to learn things. You know, mastery, I think, is a fun thing to do, you know, to to take something that you don't know and work at it and develop the skills so that, you know, at some point you, you, you have command of it. I don't, you know, you know, I don't know how best to put that. Maybe that's a value that I, I, I learned at Gibbs. You know, I, one of my favorite professors when I was a student, a guy named Jay Randall, he very much sort of taught by example. He was into phenomenology. Uh, I remember the first day of class in his class, uh, my friend Don and I, we were coming to class and we heard this like clang, clang, clang noise, right? The school was in the stadium at that time. And it's like, what is going on? I don't know. What is that? I don't know. And it get getting louder and louder. And we get there and Professor Randall, first day of class, he's got an anvil, you know, like the Wiley Coyote, Coyote anvil, right? From, from Roadrunner cartoon. And he's, he's got this piece of metal and he's got a ball peen hammer and he's pounding on it. And it, and it's just, it's turning into like this beautiful shape that, you know, it's got all the marks from the peen on the hammer that he's hammering it with, you know, and, and, and we were just transfixed by that. I think that's like an example of, of mastery, right? Like he was showing, you know, he was trying to show us not by words, not by like, oh, you must do this or you must read this or something, but like, watch me. Okay, and you'll see how it's done, right? And then someday, you know, maybe you'll be able to make a beautiful metal sculpture um, or not a metal sculpture, but whatever you're trying to master, you'll be able to master it. Thank you so much. So my next question is, what thoughts did you have about the field when joining and how did your thoughts differ from reality? I think, I think you're sort of trained to think that architects have a lot more power than they really do. A lot of the decisions are made by other people, your clients, uh, people that hold the purse strings, code officials. There, there's just so many other things that you have to adapt to. And I think, I think that that really, you know, more than anything else is something you had to adapt to in practice. Uh, and you adapt pretty quickly uh, to that. If you can't accept that, well, you're not going to probably not going to last that long. Okay. So, you basically learned that the reality is that you don't really have a lot of control 
over what you're wanting to build because that's kind of what your clients needs and what they want that you have to look for. Yeah. Yeah. M most people don't look to you as like the final authority on things. <laughs> right. Yeah. So did you have any projects that you would want to talk about and share? So I've been doing this so long, I have like many, many projects and I could bore you to death. I, I've got a, you know, uh, I'll just tell you maybe, maybe a couple that, that uh, stand out in my mind. So when I, when I first started teaching, when I first was the, the, the interim director, uh, one of my, my first classes, we worked on a project here in Tulsa for Southwest Boulevard. It's like a mile long corridor that is, it goes through the old part of Tulsa on the west side. It goes through a, a, um, an area called West Tulsa, an area called Red Fork. You know, I had, I had some students, and one of my first students um, is Weldon Bowman, who's now a very successful architect here in town, runs W Design. At the end of that project, we had a big presentation that we gave. We were working with the Southwest Chamber of Southwest Tulsa Chamber of Commerce and the planning department. Pat Treadway, I know, was there, and 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 some of the some of the other leaders in the community. And we had a big exhibit and a big presentation. It was very well received. And at the end of it, the chamber asked the students to come up, and they presented the students with a they each got a little plaque that was, we, we appreciate your, your efforts to make our community better. And, you know, it was, it was basically a little award for them. You know, and I remember afterwards, Weldon came up to me and he said, you know, he was just like, oh, this is so great, right? This, you know, and this is what it makes it all worthwhile. And I told him, I said, you know, as long as you, as long as you keep that motivation, right, you'll always be gratified with what you do. Right. And, and the goal should be get to get the plaque, not to make money or become famous or, you know, it, it, it's really the goal is to you get that plaque and, you know, you've made uh, a difference uh, with the people that I mean, that's one incident that really, you know, sticks out in my in my mind. I've got tons of project stories. You know, I, 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 how long do you have? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I like that that really stood out to you. So really a good motivation to have is the satisfaction of uh, fulfilling someone's needs and having them appreciate the work. Right. For me, when you're retired and, you know, you're, all, you're on your rocking chair uh, out on the porch, you know, I think it, it, you're going to remember the people. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to remember, like, oh, I made, I made, I made X amount of dollars on that one. Oh yeah, that's good. Right. You, you know, that's, that doesn't do it for me. Of course you got to make a living. I'm not saying, you know, you just go around as, you know, an idealist, you know, Voltaire or something, but you know, I, I think that if you don't, if you don't do it for that sort of reward, if it's all about you at the, it's going to be hollow at the end. Thank you. Uh, did you have any other shot thoughts that you wanted to share today before we end the interview? Well, I, you know, I just say I'm very grateful to be the director of the Urban Design Studio. I've enjoyed my time here and with the college, particularly all the students and faculty that I've worked with over the years. Uh, I, I, I think it's a real privilege to have the position I do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you participating in this interview with me. Yeah, well, sure. Thanks again for listening to the Give Spotlight. 
Tune in next time to hear more stories from the Gibbs College of Architecture.